perfection. You know, when you hear that word, perfection, it's generally positive things that come to our minds, right? I mean, I immediately think of sports. So in golf, perfection is a hole-in-one. In bowling, perfection is 12 strikes in a row, and you get a perfect score of 300. In baseball, perfection is when a pitcher throws a perfect game. So not a single batter reaches a single base by any means over the course of the entire game. No hits, no walks, no bean balls, no dropped third strikes, no fielding errors. So not a single runner makes it to first base, not even once over the course of the entire game. Three batters up, three batters down per inning for nine innings, no one making it on base. Now, if you're a spectator, that's a boring game. That's no fun at all, right? But if you love baseball, that's perfection. Now, just because I know you're curious, let me give you some stats, right? Over the 150 years of Major League Baseball history and over 220,000 games that have been played, there have only been 23 official perfect games in history. No pitcher has ever thrown more than one. In addition, the perfect game thrown by Don Larson, again, just because you're curious, I'm trying to be helpful here, game five of the 1956 World Series was the only postseason perfect game ever thrown in Major League history. Now, there was a perfect game thrown in 1957, but that was in the Little League World Series, which was won by a team from outside the United States, so a team from Monterey, Mexico, who defeated the heavily favored United States team when Angel Marcias threw the first and so far only ever perfect game in Little League World history. Now, you might be thinking, what does any of this have to do with anything? A great question. <laughs> My point is perfection. When you hear that word perfection, usually, generally, primarily causes people to think of positive things. However, when we put that same idea of perfection in the moral realm, so the idea of needing to be perfect in moral character, perfect in speech, perfect in action, perfect in our thoughts, our attitudes, and our orientation to people well, then perfection doesn't spark the same positive responses. Because we know that moral perfection requires us to be perfect. Perfect righteousness. All the time. With every single person. In every single situation. And we all know we all fall terribly short of that unattainable standard. But doesn't Jesus know that? Doesn't Jesus accept us anyway, even though we fall so terribly short of moral perfection? I mean, doesn't God lower the bar for us? And isn't his love unconditional, meaning it's not dependent on our behavior at all? You know, many would say yes to those questions. But unfortunately, that doesn't square with Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. It's on page 810 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chair in front of you. I always encourage you to grab my outline as well. 
What we're going to see this morning is that Jesus does not lower the bar, but in fact, raises the bar as he unpacks the Old Testament law, which should cause us all the more to realize our utter sinfulness and our desperate need to run to Jesus, who is himself, in himself, morally perfect. So that by faith in Christ and the acceptance of his righteousness, we might meet the law's demand of perfection. Now, before I read Matthew chapter 5, 17 to 20, I want you to know that it's no surprise that Jesus is going to comment on the Mosaic law here. And I say that because he started the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. So he started the Sermon on the Mount with nine blessings. With, if you remember, Moses pronounced a whole set of blessings and curses right before he died, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses said, I call heaven and earth as witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessings and the curses. So choose life that you may live. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts with the blessings, the Beatitudes. Now he's going to explicitly explain his relationship to the Mosaic Law. So if you would follow along as I read verses 17 to 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now notice Jesus' first statement, right? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So immediately Jesus is talking about his mission. So this is a defending the mission. So why did Jesus come? He tells us he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. But why does Jesus say, do not think? Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. Well, he says, do not think, because that's exactly what they're thinking. So the disciples, that's the context, but but more likely the scribes and the Pharisees who are right now misinterpreting the law, he's saying, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. And we know that they've been misinterpreting what Jesus is saying. We're going to see that all the way out through the book of Matthew. We do if we read it, right? Matthew chapter 12 gives us a great example of their misinterpretation. You don't have to turn there, but you would remember, right? When Jesus and his disciples were walking in the field on the Sabbath, when suddenly they get hungry, what do they do? What do you do when you're walking in a field and you get hungry? You start picking the grain and you're eating it. Remember what the Pharisees said about that? They said, your disciples are not doing what is lawful on the Sabbath. So they're misinterpreting the law. The Sabbath was never meant to be a workspace righteousness kind of system. Instead, it was a way to teach the necessity of resting in God. So how to find rest from your works through faith in Christ. But again, an example of how the Pharisees misinterpret the law. So Jesus says here, I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill the law. So here's the question. How exactly does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament Mosaic law? 
Well, I would suggest that he fulfills it in three different ways. The first is through his teaching, which is exactly what we're going to see as we walk through verses 21 to 48. So he's going to bring a full understanding of what the law was always commanding. So, so be clear, Jesus is not changing the law or, or adding to the law in any way. Instead, he is bringing out its fullest meaning in his teaching. So number one, Jesus fulfills the law in his teaching. Number two, Jesus fulfills the law in his active obedience, meaning he keeps the Mosaic law perfectly. So perfect moral righteousness by actively living out the Ten Commandments. So he loves the Lord his God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, commandments one to four. And he loves his neighbor, his fellow member in the covenant community, commandments five to ten. So Jesus fulfills the law through his teaching. He fulfills the law through his active obedience. But Jesus also fulfills the law, number three, through his passive obedience. Meaning Deuteronomy 30, just what Moses said. If you obey my commands, that's active obedience, you will live. But if you disobey my commands, you will surely die. Do you understand? That's the third way Jesus fulfills the law, in his passive obedience, meeting his willingness to take the curse of death that we so rightly deserve. Deuteronomy 13, 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Cursed is everyone who dies on a tree. Galatians 3.13. So Jesus fulfills all that the Mosaic law commanded. Fulfills it in his active obedience, living a life of perfect righteousness. Fulfilling it in his passive obedience, taking the curse we rightly deserve. And he fulfills it in his teaching, which we'll look at in just a moment. So Jesus fulfills all that the law demanded, and Jesus fulfills all that the prophets predicted and all that the prophets promised. No aspect of the law or the prophets whatsoever fails to be embodied, resolved, or fulfilled in and through the Lord Jesus, which is awesome. It's incredible. So A, Jesus defends his mission. Now B, Jesus defends the law. I mean, could Jesus be more explicit than what he says in verse 18? Look at verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot, so not the smallest letter or the smallest stroke, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus guarantees complete fulfillment of the law. Notice how he links those who relax the law or keep the law with their ultimate position or their lack of position in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to relax a commandment? Well, it has to mean the opposite of keeping a command and teaching others to keep a command. Because those are the two things that are put in opposition with one another, which is exactly why I titled the sermon, Perfection Required. 
Because Jesus is going to clarify exactly what it means to keep the law, commandment by commandment, and the standard is unbelievably high. Perfection required. So to relax a commandment is to minimize what it's saying down to the outward behavior of the literal command, which is exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees are not only doing, but what the scribes and the Pharisees are teaching. And what Jesus declares and clarifies and explains, verses 17 to 48, is that the law demands both outward and inward obedience. So an obedience that goes all the way down to your heart of hearts. So that we're obeying the fullest and the most thorough essence of the commandment. And what you cannot miss, you absolutely cannot miss this morning, is that heaven and hell hang in the balance. That's why Jesus says, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not. You cannot. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, why the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, because they're the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and they're the ones who are teaching a superficial, outward-only, physical obedience to the law, which is why Jesus confronts and condemns them later in Matthew, Matthew 25, and calls them hypocrites. So Jesus is declaring that only a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, so a righteousness that is not just outward, but goes down to the heart of hearts, will get you into heaven. That's the standard, moral perfection, absolute, 100%, without a stain of sin, untarnished, unfading, unwavering, pure as the driven snow, whiter than white, perfect righteousness. That's the only kind of righteousness, perfect righteousness, that will get you or I into the kingdom of heaven when we die. That's number one, perfection defined. Now let's start looking at the details. What I call number two, perfection explained. As we jump into this section, let me start off by saying that we're not going to be able to unpack these sections in their entirety. The truth is that we did a lot of that as we walked through the Ten Commandments series, so I would refer you to that sermon series. But what I want you to see is that Jesus is declaring the full meaning of each commandment. So not changing the commandment in any way, but explaining, teaching, and unpacking their fullest meaning. And each and every time he does so, the standard is so much higher than what we could have ever thought or imagined. We'll start with A, the murder standard. Follow along as I read verses 21 to 26. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, right off the bat, notice the pattern. Uh, 
Verse 21, you have heard that it was said. Verse 22, but I say to you. Jesus is going to use this same contrast six times in a row. So in every single one of the examples, right? You've got them all listed, perfection explained, murder, standard, adultery. Every single time he's going to use that same exact pattern. You can see it just as you look at the headings, the, the paragraphs, right? Verse 27, 31, 33, 38, 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, followed by verse 28, 32, 34, 39, 44. But I say to you. So he starts with the Old Testament law. He starts with the Pharisees' total misunderstanding of it, followed by the full teaching, the full understanding, the full explanation So verse 21, their understanding that murder is merely limited to physical homicide. Jesus clarifies, but I say to you. So the prohibition of murder is not simply talking about physical homicide, but instead a heart attitude of malicious hatred towards others. And this hatred, this unkindness, this lack of love, so not just physical murder, deserves the eternal wrath of God's judgment, verse 22. So Jesus raises the standard so far above the Pharisees' teaching. And he raises it because commandment number six was never just talking about physical harm, but a heart orientation of hatefulness towards others in the covenant community, which is the whole point of the examples, right? Example number one, that reconciliation must be prioritized over worship. Verses 22, 23, and 24. Second example, that reconciliation must be prioritized over disputes. Verses 25 and 26. But just pause for a moment. Because I think that example in verses 23 and 24 is what gives us a great illustration of the continuum that connects hatred all the way to murder. An example I believe that is in Jesus' mind is Cain and Abel. If you remember Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel both brought their offerings before the Lord. Abel's was pleasing to the Lord, but Cain's was not. So what happens? Well, the Lord says to Cain, Genesis 4, 6, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? But if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Well, what happens? Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother, and he killed him. So the sin that became murder started out with anger. Anger crouched at the door. And Cain was not able to master it. And where does it lead? Murder. So there's a continuum that goes all the way from anger to murder. And what's Jesus' point in Matthew 5? It's that it's all sin. Every level of the continuum is sin. Every single level is a breaking of the sixth commandment. Again, look at verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, even in his heart, 
you fool, will be liable to the fires of hell. So what's the standard? Perfection. Not getting angry. Not even a thought of negativity. Not even a little raising of the eyebrow kind of attitude towards another person. Well, let me just tell you, if that's the standard, then I fail every single day without exception. All I have to do is get in my car. Right? I get in the car, I get on the highway, somebody zooms past me. Well, he's driving out of control. I got attitude. The worst for me is when I pull up to a red light and I have somebody in front of me and it turns green. Go! (laughs) Instant, like I don't have to think about attitude or anger. It just happens. If that's the standard, I fail every day. The murder standard. Let's move on to the adultery standard. Here we go. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So again, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Pharisees' misinterpretation of the seventh commandment was that adultery was simply and only limited to the physical taking of another person's spouse. Jesus clarifies, but I say to you that adultery is not simply the outward physical act of intimacy with another man's wife or another woman's husband, but the heart attitude of sexually fantasizing about them. So even if you don't do a single thing physically, you you don't even move in that direction. But with your mind, your thoughts, your daydreams, you're thinking about them. Jesus says you've broken the seventh commandment. And the consequence is hell for all eternity. I mean, just listen to how Jesus communicates the seriousness of this sin. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, why would your right eye cause you to sin? Because you're looking at another person with lustful thoughts. Jesus says, tear it out. Throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one eye or one hand, then your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, just for clarity, that's obviously not what you should literally do. Don't go home and rip your eye out or cut your hand off. I don't want 
that to happen, Labor Day weekend, and then I hear somebody has no hand or no eye because of what they heard going on at church. But it does highlight the seriousness of sin, doesn't it? So what's the standard? Again, the standard is perfection. The standard is 100% all the time with every person, sexual purity. No lustful thoughts, no lustful looks, no lustful actions, not unless they're in the context of the God-given covenant relationship of marriage. Everything else is sin, and therefore everything else is deserving of hell. All eternity. That's what Jesus says. And to drive that home, Jesus takes aim at the Pharisees' loose interpretation of divorce, which also results in a violation of the seventh commandment. So this is C, the divorce standard. Like in verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what you need to understand is the Pharisees allowed divorce for anything just as long as a man gave a certificate of divorce. So it was ridiculous, men not taking care of their wives, but abandoning them, literally abandoning them. Jesus clarifies, but I say to you, divorce is wrong. Why? Because except in the case of marital infidelity, it causes the wife, when she remarries, which she absolutely has to do just to survive in that culture, to become an adulteress. And also necessarily for the new husband to also be committing adultery. Now what I think is so cool about Matthew is that he's already provided a positive example of what this should look like, right? We were given a positive example already in Matthew with Joseph and Mary. Remember, Mary was betrothed to Joseph, so they were engaged. And yet before they came together sexually, Joseph found out what? Found out that Mary was pregnant. So what does he do? He plans to divorce her and send her away Secretly, now, of course, we know Mary was obviously with child from the Holy Spirit, so, so all was fine, right? It all worked out in the end, obviously, right? Jesus was born. That's a really good thing, right? But, but Matthew, how does he describe Joseph? Matthew chapter 1, verse 19 says, Joseph was a righteous man. Righteous standard of what divorce would look like. But again, what's the standard? It's moral perfection. Moral perfection with regard to no hateful anger, no lustful thoughts, and no marital infidelity. Now, is Jesus done? Absolutely not. Instead, he's just getting started, right? He's got three more examples. But they're all driving home the same point that the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are doing and teaching a righteousness that is less than what the Old Testament law demands. So here's D, the oath standard, verse 33. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
And do not take an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say, he's talking about words, he's talking about speech, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, helpful to know the scribes and Pharisees taught that taking an oath was a way to guarantee the truth of one's statement. We totally get this, don't we? I mean, in a court of law, you place your left hand on the Bible and you raise your right hand and you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Why do we do that? Well, we do that to guarantee the truth of a person's statement. So the Pharisees were saying, if you invoke God's name or God's dwelling or God's throne or God's city, then we'll know that you are speaking the truth. But Jesus clarifies, doesn't he? But I say to you, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Meaning, be a person whose word is their oath and whose handshake is their bond. So Jesus goes to the heart of the matter, which is a person's integrity, and he rejects not oaths themselves, but the approach to oaths that allows integrity to somehow be optional in that transaction. True righteousness is a matter of the heart, and true integrity means doing what you say you're going to do. So liars... And lying is never acceptable. I mean, just think of the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. So what's the standard? The standard is moral perfection, specifically with your words. That you will never, ever, not once declare what is not True, no white lies or promise to do something and then not follow through on what you promised you would do. You hear what I'm saying? Not once, never. That's D, the oath standard. Again, perfection required. Now E, the revenge standard. We've got two more to go. Before I read verse 38... Let me just say, I hope you're getting hammered. You should be getting hammered. This standard is so much higher than what we could ever imagine. You need to be hearing that. So helpful. Here we go, verse 38, the revenge standard. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Scribes and the Pharisees taught an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth model of revenge, which simply means punishing in like kind or seeking from the courts a like kind of punishment. Be clear, Jesus is not condemning the use of force by the government or police or even the death penalty in order to punish criminals. He's not condemning that. But he is condemning individual retaliation and the tendency that we all have 
to take the law into our own hands, returning evil for evil, revenge as we see it on our enemies. Verse 39, but I say to you, Jesus says, do not seek your own revenge. Instead, submit to ill treatment, be a blessing, and return evil for good. Look at his examples. Verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the left. Verse 40, if anyone takes your shirt, give them your coat. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go a mile, be willing to go too. Look at verse 42. If anyone asks you for something, anything, you should be willing to give it to them. We're not anywhere close to that. We fail that standard all the time. That standard is basically do all the good you possibly can do all the time to every person that you ever come into contact with. That's the standard. Just think about how Jesus exemplified this kind of behavior. I mean, Jesus is the one who went the extra mile. Jesus is the one who gave to all those who asked of him. And Jesus is the one who literally died without the shirt on his back. In fact, just look at what Matthew says, right? Before we jump into the Sermon on the Mount, you look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. It gives us a great summary of all that Jesus did. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. What's he doing? He's trying to take care of people's spiritual needs. He's preaching the good news of the gospel to them. They can repent and believe. But he also did good to them in every way. It says, in healing every disease, every affliction among all the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him, notice, all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. He healed them. He healed them all. Jesus did not treat people as their sins deserved. Jesus did not take the law into his own hands. Jesus did not condemn the wicked. But instead, he returned evil with a blessing. He loved people both physically and spiritually. Which leads us right into the last standard, F, the love standard. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now, to be fair, the Pharisees clearly taught that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. But they also taught that it was okay to hate your enemy. By the way, notice how we've come full circle from 20, verse 21, where Jesus first introduced the continuum of murder and hatred. So we're back to the idea of hatred, full circle. But the Pharisees totally thought hatred was okay just as long as it was directed at your enemies. Yet Jesus will have none of that. 
Verse 44, but I say to you, so Jesus is insistent that we return evil with a blessing, persecution with prayer, and hatred with love. Look at what he says, the dagger to the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 46, for if those who love those who love them, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Verse 47, do not even the Gentiles do the same? Pharisees hated the Gentiles. Jesus is saying there's nothing unusual or at all righteous about loving those who love you and hating those who hate you. But that's not the standard. What's the standard? It's perfection. It's loving your enemies. You see it right in verse 48. When Jesus says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You are to love those who hate you. You are to pray for those who persecute you because that's what God is like. How incredibly impossible is that? How do you do it loving people who hate you? <laughs> I hate them back. Right? I mean, it, it is massive shifting of gears for somebody to hate me and me move towards loving them in response. I fail all the time. But that's not what God's like. How incredibly difficult the standard. And I would just say to you immediately after that, how terrifying is that standard? Remember the context. Look again in verse 20 where we started. Jesus said that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not, you cannot, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, which means that all eternity is riding on this standard. What's the standard? The standard is moral perfection. It's the very character of God. As the Father is perfect, so you and I must be perfect if we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we must achieve the standard of moral perfection, perfect righteousness, if we're going to go to heaven when we die. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The standard is perfection, which brings us to point three, perfection applied. Because this has everything to do with every single one of us this morning. Jesus is so clearly teaching that no malicious anger, no bad attitude, no thinking that the guy sitting next to you is an idiot is acceptable. That's murder. No fantasizing, no lustful thoughts, no unlawful divorce. That's idolatry. No lying, no broken promises, no fingers crossed behind your back when you say you're going to do something so that you don't have to do something. That's oath-breaking. No pursuing your own justice. That's revenge. No loving, only the loving. That's hatred. In summary, that's all sin. Against God's perfect standard called the law, and therefore is deserving of eternal condemnation in a place called 
hell. Because the standard is perfection, and there's no way in the world that we meet that standard. So what do we do? How do we respond? Well, first step, own it. A, we must own our sin. So rather than argue against God's law or try to change the standard or somehow declare that it's not fair, instead just own the fact that you are a wicked, wretched sinner. That if this is the standard, which it is, then you rightly deserve God's judgment, just like the rest of us. That's why Paul says in Romans 3.23, we've all sinned. No parentheses. (laughs) It doesn't say we all, except Steve Thiel, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So all that Jesus is doing here is highlighting just how wicked we really are and just how many different ways we sin, how often we sin, and how deep the problem of sin really goes in our heart of hearts. But in summary, every single one of us is a wicked, wretched sinner who rightly deserves God's punishment of hell for all eternity. That's a fact. But let me just pause. ask you a very simple question this morning. Is that you? Now we pause because it is so easy to just say, of course that's me. I'm a sinner. But we pause to say, do you really get that? Do you understand just how sinful you really are? Do you own that? When I say about you that you're a wicked, wretched sinner, are you like, easy bud, you're going a little too, you know, Who do you think you are up there calling me a wicked register? I'm just asking you, is that you? Do you own it? It's absolutely critical that we own it. Because when we own the reality that we're sinful, then we have no problems with the idea of hell. We don't even hesitate with the reality that there's a judgment. We rightly understand God is holy. God is morally perfect. He, he is righteous. We are not. We deserve judgment. No hesitation when we own our sin. But if we don't own our sin, wicked, wretched sinner, he's got tensions. Like, who is this that's somehow declaring that I fall short of the glory of God? 
And you're going to have all sorts of problems with hell. You're going to have issues with judgment. The reality is you're going to have issues with everything else that's said in the Bible, especially when we start talking about cultural things and what the Bible declares versus what the culture just says, radically different. Do you own your sin? When we own our sin, we're right where God wants us to be. And we're ready for step two, which is B, we must turn to Christ. Again, remember the context. Look at Matthew 5.17. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. Jesus fulfilled the law, both in his active obedience of living a life of moral perfection and in his passive obedience of dying the death that we so rightly deserve. God's wrath poured out on Christ for what? For our disobedience to the law. Also that Christ's righteousness might be given to us. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who knew no sin Jesus knew no sin. That's his active obedience to become sin on our behalf. That's his passive obedience, that he was willing to take the curse for us. Why did he do all of that? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I mean, do you understand that God's standard has never changed? Meaning he did not lower the bar. He did not reduce the requirements. He did not relax the standards. Not at all. Righteousness is the standard. Perfection is required. But it's only achievable by believing in the one who actually lived out that righteousness. So we gather every single Sunday morning in order to glory in the fact that the Lord Jesus came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. Because when we put our faith in Christ, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. His perfection becomes our perfection. Which means in the end, at the end of the day, we're promised entrance into the kingdom of heaven when we die. Not on the basis of our own righteousness. We're not going to make it on our own. But on the basis of his righteousness that has been given to us. That in Christ we are morally perfect and therefore welcomed into heaven for all eternity. But do you also recognize that that means that God's law continues to be the standard? God's law continues to be the standard. But praise God that by faith in Christ and the gift of the Spirit, we actually have the power, not perfectly, but progressively, to live the lives that God has called and commanded us to live. We actually now have the power by the Spirit to put sin to death in our lives and to actually walk in righteousness. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you obey its lusts and do not go presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But instead, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of what? Of righteousness. 
by God's grace, may we be people who recognize that perfection is the standard, that righteousness is required so that we might own our sin, not just the once and done, but we might own our sin daily, that we might turn to Christ so that we might be justified by faith, but also empowered by his spirit to walk in the righteousness that God requires, that's so clearly laid out in his law for our good and for his glory. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're so grateful. We are grateful for your word. We are grateful for this standard of perfect righteousness. Father, we recognize that you are holy and you call us to be a holy people, that you are righteous and you call us to be a righteous people. Father, we recognize that we fall so terribly short every single day. And yet we're so grateful for that standard, that you didn't lower the standard, but instead that that the standard is there so that we would see the reality of our sin, that we would own it for what it is, and that we would turn to Christ. And Father, we praise you for the Lord Jesus. We praise you for his active obedience, that he lived a life that was morally perfect, that he was righteous. And we praise you for his passive obedience, that he was willing to take the curse on our behalf, willing to die in our place. Father, we praise you for such a glorious salvation that is ours by faith alone. And Father, I pray that you would just be doing a good work in us, that we would turn to Christ on a daily basis, that we would glory in that salvation, and that by the work of your Spirit, that we would be empowered in a greater and growing way to put sin to death in our lives, that we would walk in righteousness, that your name might be praised. Father, do that good work for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.